0: I am excited to introduce you to uh, Greg Detweiler, who's going to be delivering God's Word today. Hopefully, a familiar face to some of you. He's been around Mount Hope for a long time, but probably not a familiar face to all of you. Uh, Greg attends, Greg and his wife Rita, uh, who is in the first service with us. Greg, they attend our Belmont location and are a part of that on a regular basis. They were a part of our Burlington location for many years. In fact, Greg served as a pastor on staff here at uh, Mount Hope for a number of years, was instrumental as a part of the team that formed our global outreach philosophy and strategy uh, when it comes to who we support and how we support. And, and Greg was a part of really the foundation of that and, and, and bringing that about and helping us uh, think through some important issues on that. He pastored in Boston for many years, uh, was with Chi Alpha uh, prior to that, college campus ministries. Um, and so he's come along through many ways, but currently serves as intercultural director at Emmanuel Gospel Center. And in that role, he is a global outreach partner of ours, and one that we support in the ministry that he does personally, uh, on a more personal note, Greg and Rita are friends. Wendy and I have been a great blessing to us. I have traveled with Greg as he 's expanded my thinking, uh, my ministry. we went to Israel and Palestine together. Uh, We uh, got lost in Bethlehem together, um, had to hire a cab and trust that he was taking us back to where we said we wanted to go. Uh, We went to Queens, New York for a conference. I'm not sure which was scarier, uh, Queens or Palestine, but uh, we got back and uh, we learned some things. Uh, Mostly, I am grateful for Greg's heart, for the city of Boston, for the people uh, he is a familiar face to us, but he's also very familiar to many of the churches in our Boston area, uh, in and outside the Assemblies of God. He is a, um, a thinker, but also a practitioner, and I appreciate that about him. So, would you welcome Greg, uh, Greg as he comes to bring the word to us today?
1: Hey, good to be with you guys this morning. Good to be back in Burlington. Thank you, Chuon. Where's Chuon? There he is. <laughs> Thanks for your invitation this year and for Pastor Rick. Uh, good to see old friends and to meet some new ones. Um, let me set this. I want to do something I didn't do last time. I'm going to set a timer so I know uh, we're going to end with a video story. And then when the timer goes off, then somebody could drag me off the stage. So uh, about 120 minutes should do it, right? Let's see. Uh, <clears throat> Okay, here we go. There. How many of you are familiar with a personality test called the Enneagram? Yeah? Okay, a little more than the first service. Um, It's a kind of ancient personality assessment that has gained new popularity in recent years. Uh, The Enneagram is one way that we can kind of perceive how we're wired, who we are, uh, kind of our identity, and how we move through the world. Um, I'm just going to introduce you real quickly, just real quickly there are nine types in the enneagram let me just read the labels so the one is the perfectionist or the reformer two is the helper the giver three is the achiever the performer four the individualist the romantic five the investigator the the observer six the loyalist the skeptic seven the enthusiast the epicure the visionary eight the challenger, the boss, and nine, the peacemaker, the the harmonizer, the mediator. Now, in this model, I'm a number one. I'm a reformer perfectionist. Uh, In the Enneagram, the personality types, there's like an upside uh, that you uh, kind of, the way you make your contribution, what motivates you as you move through the world, but there's also a shadow side and a dark side so for me as a reformer as a one like i am very discontent with brokenness in the world and reformers want to see things change in communities and systems in the world and my christian sensibility to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and uh And But, but, you know, being a reformer, you don't like the status quo, and so you call it out. There's a little bit of a prophetic bent and ruffling people's feathers. That's a little bit of who I am. Now, interestingly, how these types fit together. My wife is a nine. And notice what a nine is, a peacemaker and harmonizer. What that means is every time I get up to preach and she's in the audience, she's like nervous. What's going to come out of his mouth? Who's he going to make angry? You know, all this stuff. So it's interesting to live with these different types. Um, you know, Pastor Rick, you could maybe pick out Pastor Rick's type. I know Pastor Rick's type, but I'm not going to tell you. You could just kind of muse on that and think about what Pastor Rick is. How we perceive ourselves and how others perceive us as individuals and as groups of people can occupy a lot of our headspace. Some of us are actually wired to care deeply about what others around us think about us, and we're very in tune to the vibes and the nonverbal communication going on. Others of us are maybe totally oblivious (laughs) to what's going on around us, or we may be aware, but we don't care. Welcome to the world of number eight, the challenger, the boss, the protector. And then, of course, we have this arena where this takes shape in the arena of social media, where folks are prone to line up in their identity with their selected groups armed for battle uh, with members of some other ignorant, uninformed group. In this world of social media caricatures and labels of perceptions are flung like battering rams to pummel the opposing side. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Brothers and sisters, on this point, I just would add a word. We need to take care of how we engage in social media, that we do not add to the toxicity of this culture and in this moment, that we would be wise now, as a one, that doesn't mean that you don't ever say anything that somebody might not disagree with because I've been guilty of it. But I really, I really try to be very careful that if I say something that's going to be a little bit provoking, that I try and really measure my words so that it opens people up to think rather than just close down and react. And so that we would not be people that are poisoning and we would not be losing our peace in the world of social media I uh, listened to uh, a little blurb. If you listen to the Daily Word and the U version, a couple days ago, there was a pastor from New York City named Sam Kim. And he talked about, he says, we are now observing, we are now living in a CPR world. COVID ravaged, politically polarized and racially divided. Kim says, we are choking on fear and vitriol. And we need the Spirit of God to do actual CPR on us, to give us fresh breath and a right heart to navigate this moment. And everybody who would agree with that, say, amen. Amen. We certainly do. We need the Lord to, to give us his heart in this moment. Some questions I want us to ponder as we start off this morning. How do we perceive ourselves as Christians? And how do non-Christians perceive us? Secondly, how do we perceive ourselves as the collective entity called the church? And how do others who are outside the church perceive us, perceive the church? And the big question of this sermon is this. What should the church be known for? What would the Lord have us be known for? This morning, I want to take us back to a text that we looked at several weeks ago in our series on Luke. We've been in this series on Luke. I actually preached it in uh, one of the messages in Belmont on Luke 7, and I'm, I'm going to take, and I'm going to apply some of the stuff and kind of uh, adapt a little bit of the content that I had in Belmont on that, and I want to go back and use as a launching place Luke 7, beginning in verse 18. In this text, Jesus is dealing with matters of identity and perception. How the crowd perceived him and how they perceived his forerunner, John the Baptist. And let's take a look. Uh, First of all, in in, uh, Luke 7, verses 18 through 23, and this is the uh, contemporary English version, John's followers told John everything that was being said about Jesus So he sent two of them to ask the Lord, Are you the one we should be looking for? Or must we wait for someone else? When the messengers came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, Are you the one we should be looking for? Or are we supposed to wait for someone else? At that time, Jesus was healing many people who were sick or in pain or were troubled by evil spirits. And he was giving sight to a lot of blind people. Jesus said to the messenger sent by John, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Blind people are now able to see. The lame can walk. People who have leprosy are being healed. And the deaf can now hear. The dead are raised to life. And the poor are hearing the good news. God bless everyone who does not reject me because of what I do. John the Baptist was asking a question about Jesus' identity. Are you the one we should be looking for? Are we supposed to wait for someone else? And I love the way Jesus answers the question, the inquiry, in a very indirect way. He doesn't actually come right out, according to this text. It says that he was busy about doing good, about loving the, loving the outcast, about serving and declaring the good news to the poor and, and healing. And he... he Says to, to, he says to these inquirers, go back and tell John what you have seen and heard. And that's the answer. <laughs> the answer to the question is what Jesus was actually doing was, was, was his message. And then just go on down in, in the same passage in Luke and skip past a few verses. And let's pick it back up in verses 31 through 35 Jesus shifts the conversation here and he's speaking to the crowd and he says to them, What are you people like? You were inquiring about me and my identity. Now I turn the question back to you. What are you people like? What kind of people are you? And Jesus goes on to provide a direct answer to this question You're like children sitting in the market and shouting to each other, we played the flute, but you would not dance. We sang a funeral song, but you would not cry. John the Baptist did not go around eating and drinking, and you said John has a demon in him. But because the Son of Man goes around eating and drinking, you say Jesus eats and drinks too much. He's even a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is shown to be right by what its followers do. Jesus points out here the different perceptions and responses from members of the crowd surrounding John the Baptist's ministry. Some of the crowd responded to John with eagerness and openness and a desire to obey. Others were critical and closed to, uh, to John's ministry and thought he had a demon. Just as then, today, people were and are fickle. Some of them liked John's style. Some of them didn't. Some people like uh, Jesus' style, and some people didn't. Even so today, we may be drawn to different styles of ministry. Some of us may be drawn to John the Baptist kind of faith, uh, while others of us are drawn more to Jesus' approach. Some of us lean toward this prophetic piety that John embodied. Others of us lean more toward this radical inclusion that Jesus embodied. Some of us like the prophetic boldness of John where we take a stand for righteousness while others of us prefer the approach of Jesus who modeled for us a generous engagement with sinners and outcasts. There isn't necessarily a right or wrong because the truth is God is embodying both truth and and grace and mercy and all of that. But sometimes, even as the body of Christ, we have internal fights and squabbles within the church over what faithfulness to Christ looks like in this moment in time in our generation. But Jesus delivers the bottom bottom line in verse 35 when he says, yet wisdom is shown to be right by what its followers do. Do you notice the parallel here? John starts this section and he sends his followers to say, Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus' answer was basically, look at what I'm doing. Then he turns to the crowd and says, well, what kind of people are you? And the bottom line of that section is basically, you will be proven for who you are, not by everything you say, but but what you do. That's how you will be known, by what you do. Question for you along these lines What are you people like? <laughs> what kind of people are you? Or, as the ESB says, to what shall I compare people of this generation and what are you like? There was a study done in 2019 uh, by the Barnett Group, and I want us to go there. I don't know if it's the next slide or not, but I go to the next slide. And keep going. Keep going. Um, in this in this study, keep going again. <laughs> there we go. Um, in this study Notice the question on the top. This was the question that was asked, or one of the questions that was asked. Which of the following words, if any, would you use to describe evangelicals in general? So this is perceptions of evangelicals among U.S. adults. Now, um, right or wrong, this is the perception of how others perceive us and how we perceive ourselves. And a spoiler alert here, there is a big gap between the way evangelicals see themselves and how others see us. And let me also, before I go in this detail too much, is to give you a trigger warning. Some of you are gonna react strongly to this information. Some of you are gonna get defensive and wanna debate these perceptions. Others of you are going to want to wear the perceptions as a badge of honor. <laughs> and others of you are going to want to crawl under your chair as I share these findings. And so what I would say to you before I go in to look at these a little more, is, just feel the feelings. <laughs> However you react to it, just feel the feelings. And just invite the Lord to say, "Lord, how are you coming to me through this feeling?" How would you come to me through this feeling? What would you say to me today through this feeling? So I'm just going to point out a few things here. As I mentioned, this, on this one question, which of the following words? So they offered some, some words, some adjectives to describe evang- evangelicals or just to ask the impression. And I just wanted you to notice two colors. One is red which is the non-Christian perception, and the yellow is evangelicals' perceptions of themselves. And I want you to see particularly where there's a big gap between the perception. So I'm not gonna go through every one of these, but religiously conservative, and politically conservative, you see the yellow and the red are you know, relatively close. You have 40%, uh, a little gap in the political conservative. But then you go to some of the other descriptors, caring. So caring, Evangelicals there, they say, well, 60% say, you know, we're a really caring group. and then, But the perception of non-Christians is like, what, under about 10%. Hopeful, uh, non-Christians say the evangelicals, like 7%, they're a hopeful tribe, whereas we say about 60%. Uh, uh, Encouraging, um, the non-Christians say, uh, what, about 7%? And we say, what, over 50%, generous. the non Christians say about what, seven, eight percent. We say about 52 uh, percent homophobic. Here you go with some of the issues, you know. About zero or one percent of evangelicals say we're homophobic, and uh, the non Christians, what's uh, about 30 uh, percent? Just go over here. Misunderstood. Uh, you know, the non Christians, uh, what they give us, eight percent, and uh, we say 20 percent. We're just a misunderstood group. Misogynistic. There are about zero of us who think we're misogynistic, maybe one percent, and uh, over twenty percent racist, similar thing, and on, on, on you go. So this, this perception. How do you, how do you react to these perceptions, especially the negative perceptions of non? Christians upon the evangelical church in America? That's a Selah question. That's a rhetorical question. How do you you respond to that? Again, like I said, there are probably multiple things you could be reacting uh, to. But I I just want to say this about it. When people have a different perception than you about you than you do, that can be a very vicious cycle. And what, what do we do about this perception problem? Well, I, I would say this. One thing that will not help is try to de, trying to defend yourself. And to try to convince somebody who holds a negative opinion about you why they shouldn't have that negative opinion. And that can just lead into like just an intractable kind of conflict. Um, how, many, how many people in the room today are married? Okay, So uh, let me apply this in the arena of marriage. Now, I've been married going on, close, going on toward 40 years. And over those years, there's been just a few times that Rita and I have had, been at loggerheads with a different perception and been in conflict and a different perception and something. Now, let me tell you, in that arena, I don't think it's rarely helped. I'm not saying ever, but it depends on how open the person is. But it often doesn't help just for each of us to dig in our heels, especially when we're in this intractable space and just continue to rehearse our, our individual perceptions of this conflict. It takes something else to get out of that cycle. And I, I asked Rita for permission to share this story because it was one illustration in the thousands and thousands of negative stories that I could tell where I got my way out of this, this cycle. And so once Rita and I were in this, in this kind of intractable thing, it, it, it had gone on, a conflict for hours. Um, it was dark. We weren't getting anywhere. And I saw her wedding ring sitting in the kitchen on the counter. She had done some work, and she had set it there. And I saw how dirty it was. And I just felt like, I don't know, I just felt like the Lord said, you know, clean her ring. And so I shined it. It looked really beautiful, you know, because... Wedding rings get really dirty. And, uh, and then I just wrote a little sticky note and put it on the range and said, will you marry me? And that, that action of connecting more relationally back to her and serving her and loving her that way was the lever out of that pit. And I would suggest to you that we as the body of Christ, that is the same kind of lever we need to push on if we hope to see people's perceptions and the beauty and goodness of our God and the beauty and goodness of the gospel of this kingdom, this good and righteous and wonderful and peaceable kingdom that we are to be a part of, we need to push on that lever to be known by our acts of love and service. I'm not saying there isn't a time, there aren't times where we need to draw a line in the sand and stand our ground. I'm not saying there aren't those those moments, but m- the more that we can be known through our acts of love and service and, uh, and ministry, uh, the, the the I think we're going to be way ahead of the game. What are what are we known for? If on if onlooking people wonder what the church is about or what it means to be a Christian, what would they conclude by looking at our actions? I love, I would love for us to be known as people who give special attention, that we are known as as a people, as a tribe who love and care for the people that Scripture consistently throughout the corpus of scripture calls us to care for, the widow the orphan, the foreigner, the alien, the stranger, the poor, the outcast. I would love for us, when people think of the church, they say, man, they are the ones who are on the forefront of loving in that way. I would love for us to be known as pro-life people in the way that Mother Teresa was pro-life through her sacrificial example of caring for orphans and the dying. I would love for our church To look like heaven, filled with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, knowing one another deeply loving one another deeply across those lines. And when people look at the church, they do not see a segregated, divided church, but they see a church that's able to cross all of those lines and that it's not a superficial kind of gathering, but these people know one another, love one another, and that it's a witness of the kingdom. I would love for us to be known for our vital marriages that people would look at our Christian marriages and they would say, Man, those marriages are like a wonder. They're a sign and a wonder pointing to something, pointing to what a relationship with Jesus is like. And yes, there's a lot of debate over marriage and sexual ethics and whatnot in today's day and age. But the one thing that I would say is, if we can have vital, flourishing, biblical marriages they can li- that lead the way in that arena. You know, and praise God for where we do, where we do have it, even within our own local church context, As I thought about this, I thought, where do we see this love? What are some stories even in our own context? And I thought of Sylvia Anthony. How many of you know Sylvia? Sylvia is a part of our Belmont church, but many of you know her. What, Sylvia is like 90, 92. 92. For the past 30 years, she has poured in her resources. And there have been over a thousand mothers, mothers, single mothers who are like, either homeless or destitute or domestic abuse, she's taken them into her home with their children. Uh, see, many children that were uh, born while the mother was in care, and, and if, if you've heard some of the stories, some of these children that they took in in these, in these vulnerable situations that have now graduated from college, that are going on doing wonderful things. This is one elderly lady who's still doing it at 92. 92. Lord, give us more people like Sylvia. I think of the Weir family who were here in the Belmont campus. And Pastor Rick said today they're adopting four more. What is that? They're like, they got to be approaching like 20 children they've adopted from around the world. From many nations around the world who love them as their own biological children. Lord, give us more people like the, the, the Weirs. In uh, Belmont, um, the, uh, Brian Demers. If you, some of you know Brian, Brian has really stepped up every week in the ministry that I partner with. We serve refugee families all throughout Greater Boston who are in kind of food scarce situations, and we will bundle uh, 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 food staples and whatnots and th- things that they. They need and we will deliver them. And so churches, church volunteers will go out and Brian is like leading the charge on our Belmont campus and, and getting more people involved in that ministry. Lord, give us more. Uh, in The service today, Pastor Eddie, who's taken a group into the prison and served the prison community with the, uh, the, the, by serving and loving and being present and demonstrated the kingdom in that context. There's so many contexts. Thank God for what what is being done, but Lord, increase it. The bottom line is this, and this is kind of what I want us to take, is that wisdom is shown to be right by what his followers do. Jesus was known by what he did. His message was demonstrated in what he did, and we need to be known in that way as well. The next next, uh, slide just talks about how we need to follow our leader. Jesus came and he was the Lord of all creation, Hey, there's there's the thing. Don't mind that. That means nothing. That means nothing. Uh, Jesus is the Lord of all creation, and yet he came, and how did he come? He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. We are to imitate jesus and that's why in matthew 5 jesus in the sermon and it says in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven i want to close this sermon with just bringing this to a point of application for our current moment and we're going to close with a four-minute video story um One of the things that we've been doing in our work is try to help the church to engage and serve ref- refugees who've come in. And more re- uh, in, in recently, in the last month or so, um, the, the agencies that are responsible for resettling refugees are totally in over their heads. All, many of you have heard the story of the Afghan evacuees. As the Taliban have come back in, folks who were most vulnerable... Um, You know, these are folks who are most at risk from a reprisal of the Taliban, folks who work for the U.S. military, for American or Western-based NGOs, and among their most fierce advocates for these folks that are being evacuated are U.S. soldiers, because they know that the folks that work with them risk and put their life on the line, and so many of the soldiers' sentiment about it seeing these folks come are the same sentiment that the soldiers have about leaving no man behind, because these are folks who will experience reprisal. A uh, colleague that I work with served in Afghanistan for eight years. Gary lives with us in our home now, and he is uh, the founding director of a ministry called Cataluma that is serving hospitality to refugees who are resettling in the Boston area. Because Gary worked in Afghanistan, he has helped to do paperwork for 200 people who worked for his organization when he was there. And so I hear Gary early in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, on phone with people in, with people that he knows in Afghanistan and doing paperwork and advocating that they will be able to escape and to come. At the same time, we're doing all this work on this side, preparing to receive so the U.S. is expected to receive 95,000. That's just the United States. And in Massachusetts, we're expecting to receive 1,100. Because we're a known entity in this field, we got, started getting calls saying, we cannot handle this. Can the churches help us? So we have been officially asked, how will the church respond Will the church respond with fear? Will the church respond with it's nice in theory but not in practice? Or will the the church have a heart and a mind and roll up their sleeves to engage in this? And it's not just the Afghans. The Afghans are like got a lot of press. In this work in refugee, there are those that get the press and those that don't, those that get good press, those that get bad press. The truth is the church needs to build our muscles in this area to serve not just Afghans, but all, all people that God would allow us to engage with. Haitians, we heard a story this morning. Haitians at the border. And, and again, I know this raises all kinds of issues. I would love to talk to you about any of those issues. I, we need to let our guidance come from our kingdom identity in terms of how we respond as the primary lens with how we respond to these situations. And so with the Afghan situation and others, what is the need at the moment? Let me just list for you. We need host homes, people who have an in-law apartment, people that own property that you would open up your place. If you have a home and you have uh, rooms that are vacant and you would be willing to allow a, a, an Afghan Uh, individual or most of them that are coming in are with small families and you know two weeks ago the first afghan family arrived in, in in at boston logan and i am so grateful that christians were among those of the receiving party and our organization housed the first three afghan families that came to boston And praise God (laughs) that the church, that the first people they saw were the church in action. But our organization can't do it because our organization is you. It's, it's the church responding to this. So we need host homes. We need creative housing solutions. We need volunteers to help these folks navigate this strange place, this strange new place. That we need essential goods like grocery cards and Target cards and, and, and pharmacy cards and, trans, and public transportation cards and those kinds of things. So these are all ways that you can help. And when I come back for a luncheon, I think on November the 28th, we can talk more about that. But you don't have to wait till then. Come and talk to me because there's there's needs now. And mostly, what these folks need is this friendship to meet Americans that are open and welcoming and, and just loving. We need Christians. I'm going to close with this, with a video, and I want you to meet Zainab. A few years ago in our work with refugees, we met Zainab, who came here as a Muslim woman. We found her homeless, needing a place to find a place to live. And there were Christians that rallied around her at strategic points in her journey. And her own testimony was that it seemed like Christians were there at every turn. So much so that Zainab was literally loved into the kingdom of God through the actions of Christians. And we need more of that kind of, kind of action. I, I would just say this last thing and then we'll shoot the video. Folks who are coming from Af- Afghanistan, just as an example, some of them may be your brothers and sisters in Christ who are fleeing persecution. And they know to stay is a death sent- could be a death sentence. So, how will we receive our brothers and sisters from the minority church in Afghanistan? Will we open our life and a home? And secondly, there are kind of nominal Muslims coming in this group who've seen the worst expression of Islam in their homeland and so you know, any fear that you have about oh, these are going to be like like terrorist or you know wild, crazy people. <laughs> These are actually people who are pretty disillusioned. And if any time they're open now to an alternative expression of faith, it's now. But a lot of it depends on how we respond. We need to respond more like we did to Zainab. Let's watch this as a close.
2: So climate is very important for Zaffron. For example, it has to be hot and dry So you cultivate that and you can see the flower coming out only once a year. And inside that flower, there is threads. So they have to take all those threads by hand and put them aside. Being in a family is the whole thing that you can have in the world, I think. So being apart from your family is the biggest thing that I miss the most. I have heard from my like church friends, from my Christian friends, that Jesus, Jesus itself, he was a refugee and he had to go to another place. So as a Christ follower, Jesus means to me um, love, knowing that there is someone who really, really for real loves you and no matter what, what you do, he still loves you and he will be with you. And when I came here to United States, that was like the most like, you know, important part because the people like, that they have been always helping me, they were like always Christian people. And like, I came to this point that this is like, a religion of love. And how beautiful is that? Like my inside feeling was very different than before. And I had that feeling and I had to kind of show it in some way. Like by going to church or by doing baptism, that feeling was a little satisfied. Like getting a new feeling of like, you know, coming to Christ or having a new faith. That was very strong that I couldn't. It was beyond my control. Through these two years, American friends, like, they helped me by like, coming to me, visiting me, talking to me, hearing my stories, and sometimes helping me finding a shelter, a house to live, and like, showing me the way that I can move forward. Like, the way the system works in here is maybe totally different than Afghanistan. So, that way they helped me a lot so by being with me in my struggles. Yeah, finding a job always is a big challenge for refugees and um, because sometimes you have education in your own country, you have a lot of ability and skills in your country, um, but sometimes they are not applicable and you have to kind of go and start from zero, um, my biggest desire for saffron is to import it to United States. My people are very poor and that's why they and the climate is very good for both saffron and opium. So that's why um, they are doing the opium. but we have to kind of bring the culture that we can replace that with a better thing like saffron. It's very good for you. It's, it has a lot of benefits for you and I can, uh, by doing that, I can bring a lot of benefits to my country too. Like empowering women, we can like doing that. I think the beauty of that is also like they wanna rise again. And there is a beauty coming out of that, all those struggles. It's like the zaffron flower that we finally get the high quality saffron of it.
0: Thank you, Greg. Appreciate the word and the challenge this morning that you've given to us. And it is a challenge. What does God want you to do? We're known not only to others by what we do. I think if you read, as you read the scriptures, we find out we're known to God by what we do. There's a passage of scripture in Matthew 25 where Jesus is talking to two groups of people. And, uh, and one group, he says, you know, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was in prison. You never visited me. I was naked. You never clothed me. And they said, when, when, did, when, did, when did we do this? When did we do this to you? And he said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. He says, I don't know you. And he says to another group, he said, when, you, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink was naked you clothed me and they said well when did we do this they said when you did it to the least of these you did it to me and in that story he's saying that not only are we known to others by what we do but somehow we're, we're known to god by what we do it reveals our heart of who we are and so we've been called this morning mount hope what what do you do what is god calling you to do so we're going to be talking about these next three weeks next three Sundays and two weeks as we look at Global Outreach, not only what have others been called to do and what are we called to do in supporting them in their work, but what is God calling us to do? A couple Sundays from now I'll be standing before you and we'll talk about that commitment. We'll say what is God calling you to do when it comes to prayer, when it comes to possibly going, when it comes to giving, when it comes to doing all part of this mission. God has left us here for a reason, something to do. Uh, This uh, woman in this video, Saeed, lives on, I think she still lives on Gordon-Conwell campus, doesn't she? She lives on Gordon-Conwell campus up in uh, South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Also on Gordon-Conwell campus uh, seminary up there, there is the J. Christy Wilson Prayer Chapel. J. Christy Wilson was is uh, known as the father of modern Afghan missions. In 1951, he left the United States and was given permission to go into a then-closed country to teach. He started um, hospitals. He started ministries to the blind. He started services for, for, for schools and for teaching English. And he brought the gospel with him. I don't know how many people supported Jay Christie Wilson. I don't know what kind of support he had when he went over there. But I imagine there were many Christians that were willing to say, Christy Wilson, if you will go to Afghanistan, we will support you. We will give you the money. We'll help you go. We'll, we'll, we'll make it so you can go to Afghanistan and teach, bring them the gospel. I imagine if many of us in this room were there back then and asked that question, we would say, yes, we'll write the check. We'll support you. If You're going to go and show and share the love of Jesus with people who've never heard in Afghanistan. We'll support you. But I wonder uh, what the response would be. Would our response be similar when we say, well, the Afghans are coming to you. <laughs> you don't have to write the check. You don't have to, you don't have to spend, spend a lot of money to send someone to go. They're coming. Will you show and share the love of Jesus with them in the same way that you would send someone to do it in their own country? Consider that question. Consider what God is calling you to do as we stand and worship and close our service out with this song. Would you do that together now? Lord, lead us. Lord, speak to us. Lord, help us to hear from you and what you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name.